So sitting there over a glass of wine in San Diego, um, we said, okay, these are the constraints. These are the things. This is what you need. This is what yes. we want. And we came up with the inverter. Welcome to the Dental Implant Podcast with your host, Pav Kara, your source of knowledge for all things relating to dental implants. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something valuable. I hope. So good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the next episode of the Dental Implant Podcast. And today, I, uh, I'm actually really excited because I think I'm going to learn a lot as well. So for all you titanium nerds out there, this is going to be superb, okay? So if you, I pride myself that, you know, I educate myself a lot and I know a reasonable amount regarding implants. Uh, I have with me joining, uh, joining me today, Graham Blackbeard, who is the founder of Southern Implants. Um, now, if you think I knew a lot about implants, <laughs> we're about to melt your mind. Uh, so, Graham, thank you very much for joining me on a Sunday morning. Uh, it is quite early here, so if I'm rubbing my eyes, it's because I've, you know, I've taken Archie out for a walk already, and it's early. And it's <laughs> do excuse me, it's literally a Sunday morning. Um, so, Graham, thank you very much for joining me today. And uh, just to just to start. Um, could you give us a little bit of a background with regards to how Southern Implant started? Because I believe you're actually an engineer. So a lot of the things that we're going to talk today, the level of engineering that goes into this is, is absolutely incredible. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a little bit about your history, that would be very, very much appreciated. Certainly, Pev. Uh, thank you very much for, for having me on this. And uh, uh, certainly hope that I can remember the, the right things at the right time. Uh, that's always the thing. Um, so my background is mechanical engineering. Um, I also then did a master's in industrial engineering and then went off to the University of Utah where I worked for um, Willem Koff, who was a Dutch guy that the Americans had recruited after the Second World War. Um, he'd invented dialysis during the Second World War um, and he then developed the artificial heart and various other um, items. Um, yeah. So he probably taught me more than anybody else. Um, this wonderful gentleman, um, Willem Kolf, from Groningen in, in Holland, basically, but uh, it was all out at the University of Utah. So then yeah. I came back and started a company um, to make artificial hearts um, oh. and heart valves. Um, so the original name of the company, which is now Southern Implants, was actually Cardiac Devices. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is that we were making the housing for the heart valves out of titanium. Um, mm. And two prostodontists uh, um, contacted me almost within two weeks of each other, um, asking, they, they'd heard that I was making heart valves with titanium um, and could we please help them uh, with certain problems that they had um, so the one was Peter Kemp who'd done his prostodontic training at the Eastman in London um, uh, and the other was um, Hannes Slubbert from the University of the Witwatersrand um, they'd both been on training with Professor Bronemark in 1985 so this was now 1987 um, and they asked me if I could please help them with abutments. So we 
I put my mind to it, went and found the literature, etc., and we made some abutments that they needed um, to finish off some cases that they were doing. Um, and, of course, within weeks they came back and they said, can you please make us implants? Um, and the, the main part of this was that um, there were sanctions against South Africa uh, from the United Nations because of the apartheid policies. Mm -hmm. um, so we had two dental schools who had been trained up in Sweden on dental implant therapy, yeah. um, and they couldn't get the Noble Biocare products, or it was at that time Noble Pharma, mm -hmm. from Sweden, because the Swedes are very ethical guys. They didn't want to break the sanctions. Mm -hmm. um, now, interestingly enough, um, the French and the Germans generally don't worry too much about sanctions. <laughs> um, so you could get the product, but it had to come via Germany with an yeah. extra link in it and extra cost being added because somebody knew that if they were going to break sanctions, they were going to make some good profit out of yeah. this. <laughs> so, so there was a cost aspect to it, and then, of course, that. Um, so we went ahead and we, we made the very first implants, um, and interestingly enough, the very first patient... Um, just before we were about to do the operation, they discovered that he was diabetic, oh, um, wow. completely uncontrolled diabetic. Mm -hmm. So we delayed that. So our very first uh, patient, um, it took three months before they stabilized him and they got his diabetes under control. And he happened to be an Austrian. Mm -hmm. um, and so he had these implants. And I was so worried that maybe we'd missed something. Um, when we made these very first implants back in 19... They were made in the beginning of 1988. Mm -hmm. um, that I actually... Uh, we, we put in one of ours, one Nobel, one of ours, one Nobel. So we filled his mouth with implants yeah. almost, um, thinking that maybe we'd missed something in the, in, in the recipe um, to do these. Of course, they all integrated yes. um, very well. And then he moved back to Austria... And interestingly enough, uh, two years ago, um, he ended up going to a dentist who is a Southern Implants customer mm -hmm. in Austria. Um, so we got the 30-year the, the follow-up, basically, of this, which is just fascinating. <laughs> so that's really how it all started and how it got going. So I, we do still have a cardiac company that mm -hmm. makes cardiac devices, um, and uh, that goes under the name of Glycar. Um, but uh, the, the main focus of everything that I did from then onwards was with dental implants, mm -hmm. because it was right at the start yes. of the growth of a new market. Yeah. And when something's at that place, it just gives so much opportunity. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it was much more exciting than making artificial hearts. Yes, yeah. Um, so uh, for disclosure to anybody watching or listening, um, I use Southern Implants, but I have no financial affiliation with them. I, the end of this podcast isn't being sponsored or anything like that. The reason why I'm chatting to Graham is because he is a wealth of knowledge, and we're going to get onto some of that in, um, uh, in just a moment. Um, uh, Graham, just so that you're aware, you know, when I first started my implant journey, is you know I, I studied quite hard, and um, <laughs> when I was first speaking to Steve, particularly about external hex, it was just like it's such an outdated, unstable connection, and I thought that I knew more about implants than what I did. And as I started to research the data more and more, what what I originally thought, I thought. 
my understanding was here and like Southern Implants was like 20 years behind, but it was actually the other way around, you know, is, is, is the level of precision of engineering that goes into this and the misnomer with regards to external hex is incredible. And as I said, when I started to speak to uh, Steve and yourself and, uh, and other colleague, colleagues as well, there's so much that started to come out of the woodwork and um, there's a number of things that I'd like for you to touch on. Um, firstly, it's with relation to the titanium that you use and how it differs from uh, from what most other companies out there are using it. And obviously the level of precision of engineering that you guys go to as well, because it is completely on another level. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why uh, why uh, we use Southern is obviously, you know, I'm based at Evo Dental and I can't fathom doing a full arch without the coaxis. Um, combine on top of that the the MSC, you know, the, the, the machine next surface. And you and I, I have had uh, conversations with regards to removing hydrocarbons and the benefits that that gives. I just think it's, it, it, it's a fantastic all-rounded system and uh, and you also have site-specific implants as well. So there's there's literally nothing that I can't do without Southern Implants. So, again, if you could give us a little bit of the history behind how that's all evolved, the engineering behind it, the titanium that you use, that would be very much appreciated. With pleasure. Um, let me start with uh, the titanium. Um, it's not too special, um, but with everything, you always wanting to do the very best you can. Um, and as an implant manufacturer, um, the one thing that you have to do is to do the least harm to patients that you could possibly do. Um, so the, you know, we are putting an artificial material into the, into the patient and it's going to be there for many, many years. Um, so the idea really is that you've got to do something that is as inert as yeah. possible so that we do not want things that are going to be corrosive, etc. So one of the fundamental things there is that we want the most inert uh, material. Um, so if we're going to use titanium, we must go with pure titanium. Um, alloys corrode at a much higher rate than do pure titanium um, in, the, in this environment. Now, certainly there are other environments where the alloys are fine, but in the oral environment, in contact with blood, um, the pure titanium corrodes at a lower rate than the alloy. So, so that was sort of one of the fundamental things. The reason to use alloy and why quite a number of manufacturers do use alloy is that A, it machines better, so you can make a more precise part sometimes with it, um, and B, um, it is stronger. But it is only stronger in tensile strength. So, so on a single blow, it yeah. is stronger. So that means that if you're designing the implant for, a, for Muhammad Ali, a <laughs> boxer, where it will be a single blow onto yeah. his implant, then the alloy is the yeah. better thing because it won't break as easily. But most people, you're designing them for masticatory function. So, in other words, cyclic yes. loading. And in cyclic loading, the pure material doesn't grow cracks as well as, or as badly, yeah. should I say, as does the alloy. So, um, so that's 
compelling reason to use for corrosion and fatigue resistance, the pure titanium yes. is the better thing. So now how do we get a pure titanium that is really strong? Um, and for that, we went to the... So, as you know, um, a lot of the titanium comes from South Africa. We do part of the process in here, and we turn it into lumps of product that has already been through three yeah. processes before it is sent off to one of the titanium uh, producers. And so we formed a relationship with one of them, uh, the best ones, um, in near um, Philadelphia sort of area of the USA. Um, and, and there we discovered that, you know, with metals, it's still a little bit of a black art. You know, they, they get this raw stuff that's come out of the ground and, and they now do it and then they get mm -hmm. a batch. And each batch has slightly mm -hmm. different properties. Um, so the minimum property is the ASTM yeah. standard. Um, but many batches are way, way better than that minimum standard. Um, so the next thing was, well, why don't we just, why don't they just let us know when they get a really yes. good batch? Um, and, uh, and then we'll buy from that batch. Um, and then we could put it on our drawing. So I think we're the only company where we put on the drawing minimum tensile strength, 920 megapascals, um, whereas the standard is yeah. only 550. So, so it's a lot higher yeah. than the standard. Um, and all our fatigue testing, etc., has been done now on this, and it's on the drawings, and that's exactly yeah. what we use. And that gives us wonderful properties of fatigue yeah. resistance, etc. So just interestingly, uh, a week ago, Professor Carlo Ferretti said to me, oh, you know, he came across a zygomatic case, um, 14 years it's been in the mouth, and these implants have broken. Um, and he worries now about putting zygomatics in. Um, the first point is that 14 years ago, we didn't yes. have this material. Um, so the material was probably 25 or 30% less mm -hmm. fatigue resistant to the material wow. of today. So had you used today's zygomatics, it probably wouldn't have broken. Now, the other reason that it broke, I think, is that it was misfitting mm -hmm. prosthetics. But you might have got away with it with the higher strength than, than you did um, 14 years ago with a 14-year-old. Yeah. So I think material, one's got to use the, the absolute best, and, and that does require that. So now the difficulty is, um, you know, what if you need material and they don't have one of these batches that meets the 920 mm -hmm. megapascal? Um, so what we do is we keep about 10 years supply of titanium. So I've got a, I, I said, rather than give my money to, to an investment house to go an investment, I'll yeah. invest in titanium and this very yeah. special titanium. So we keep a huge yeah. store of it so I that we can I, do I, that. I so even with like... the... Huge amounts of titanium just just sat there in storage. It's supposed to be incredible. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so you know, this also came up in our discussion when uh, because we make the zygomatic mm -hmm. implant for Strauman, um, and the question was, should we use the alloy with the zirconia in it, with the zirconium? Sorry, not zirconia. Um, and the answer is no, because this pure titanium um, has pretty much the yeah. same tensile strength. It's actually better in fatigue, I, and, uh, and yet yes. um, it's pure. 
And when you're doing things like zygomatics, which are very big, a large amount of surface area, you want to go yes. for the least corrosive product yeah. that you could possibly have. So um, I certainly um, don't think it would be a wise idea to put alloy, titanium alloy into yeah. zygomatic implants uh, simply because of the volume yeah. of titanium that you have. Yeah. So that's the, that goes to that. Um, then uh, I think your next question following the, um, the titanium was, uh, you know, the, the other aspects of it that we, that we go to. Um, so one of the other things that we found is that the cutting tools are very important because they end up actually giving you your surface. And when you've got the MSC surface, which is a machine surface, um, what are we trying to do with that? We're trying to get a surface that is resistant to biofilm, as resistant to biofilm as those original yes. Bronomark implants, because we know that that really yeah. worked incredibly well. You could have bone loss, and we're always going to get some bone loss just due to uh, remodeling. Um, that we know is going to happen over time. As patients get older and older, the, the bone volume is going to decrease and implants aren't going to stop that. So if we're going to have the top end of an implant or the uh, coronal end becoming exposed in, into the soft tissues, um, we want to use something as inert as possible and something that the biofilm doesn't attach to as well. With a lot of the modern machining tools, we end up with surfaces that are a lot smoother than what Bronemark did with those implants many years ago. And that is a problem, and that's where 3i ran into a problem when they did the machine surface. They were using modern tooling that actually left that surface too smooth yeah. for the attachment of the osteoblasts, etc. So in order to get an MSC, that machine surface at the top, to actually integrate well, you need to have a certain amount of machining roughness mm -hmm. on that surface. Um, so we had to go and take old Bronemark implants mm -hmm. and put them on the SEM. And, and our old implants that we made in 1988, which also had very, very mm -hmm. stable bone levels on them, and have a look at exactly yeah. how that surface looked now, the interesting thing is that the cutting tools that were used in those days had a particular grain structure of the titanium, uh, of the tungsten carbide. And as things have gone on, they've been able to refine that and they make cutting tools that are much better, more efficient. But it doesn't leave you with the same surface. So we have to go back to going to getting tungsten carbide with a particular grain size to give us back yeah. that particular surface because we yes. know that works so well. Um, and, of course, it would take another 30 years to find out if maybe something different is right. But let's rather work with what we know. Um, so, yes, and as a result, we make our own cutting tools so that we can control the surface um, that much better. <laughs> so that, that is, is a critical factor. Um, and uh, most, most people will just buy cutting tools, but uh, yep. we, we've actually now got a tool room that makes the cutting tools so that we can control these things to just another 
Another degree. <laughs> this is one thing I find really interesting. It's not just, oh, it's a machined surface. It's a, well, you need a machined surface, but we know it's a certain topography that gives us that balance between lack of biofilm adhesion, but, uh, but permitting the osteoblasts to actually integrate onto the surface. And the modern tools are almost too good. They give too smooth a surface. So you've actually gone back, you've done the SEM analysis on the original Branemarks, and you're like, right, we're going to replicate that. This is what I'm saying uh, to, to those listening and watching. This is the level of precision of engineering, which makes me happy that I'm, that, that, that I'm using Southern. It's not just, ooh, I want a machine surface. It's that we know, and um, I did actually have some Branemarks that I needed to removed for, 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 for a patient because I was redoing her case and prosthetically they weren't in the correct position and they'd been in her, in her mouth for about 35 years and they were really difficult to remove and they were machine surface so it's going back to knowing what works and replicating that and not just going oh well we're going to program in a machine surface you know the, so the precision of, le- of, of engineering is just incredibly important as well it's just fascinating to hear Greg <laughs> and certainly, you know, you, you pick up, you, you meet wonderful people and you pick up great sort of nuggets of information. Um, and uh, Neil Meredith was, was someone who, who really helped us quite a lot. Um, and he put us onto a, a, a machine uh, that was developed by Olympus um, for mm-hmm. surface characterization. And um, a lot of this we would not be able to do um, had we not got this particular yeah. confocal microscope. Um, so SEM mm-hmm. can do certain things which are very good, um, but it certainly can't mm-hmm. do surface topography properly. Um, yeah. For that, you need a confocal microscope. Um, and mm-hmm. Neil Meredith put me onto that. And that just yeah. opened up a complete new world of being able to really control your surface that much better. In terms of the um, contaminants, the carbon contaminants, etc. Um, it's certainly something yeah. which we've been working on a lot of the time. And here we've got to either go in one direction or another um, because there are two things that are, mm-hmm. are pulling it apart. So the one way that 90% of manufacturers remove the carbon contaminants on the surface mm-hmm. um, is with acid. So with acid, you can always remove all the carbon. Um, but the problem is it leaves your yes. surface more corrosive. So in the short term, fantastically good, because you now have this surface that's free of carbon contaminants. But in the long term, you're going to have a more corrosive surface, which is going to play problems with periimplantitis later on. Um, so, yes, um, I wouldn't say that we've managed to get rid of all the carbon. We can, but then we're going to have a worse surface in the long term. So you've got to get a balance um, in between this. And that's what, what is the difficulty there, because you've got two things pulling in different directions for that. Um, so one of the things with the corrosion is that we found out that the National Physical Laboratory in London, the NPL, um, they had done a lot of work for the... Yeah. Um, orthopedic industry and had almost changed the orthopedic industry from using a particular the common alloy um, grade 5 titanium um, because of the results that they got 
um, on this. So we said, okay, they've developed all the test methods, yeah. so let's rather go to this laboratory because they can do it. So we gave them implants from various manufacturers, including our own and some experimental ones, and we asked them to characterize these. Um, there are three different ways in which you can measure corrosion fairly well, um, and they do give different results. Um, and obviously, if, if one was a little bit uh, unethical, you would only present the one where your product does the best. <laughs> um, but you've got to look at them all. In the, in the one particular test, um, ours was second best, um, Strauman was best, um, probably because they pack it in, the SL Active is packed in saline, which does have an advantage um, in this particular test. Um, only in this one test. And that is also the, the very fascinating thing that, that I've discovered over the years, is that yes. you can test things in a lot of different ways, and then yes. you only publish the one that shows that your product is the better one. Um, and we did this with uh, uh, the University of California in San Francisco on a spinal product that we were developing. Um, and they tested over a whole lot of things, um, and it didn't show that our product was that great, except in the one test. And they said, okay, well, this is the one we'll publish yeah. because it obviously shows that your product is superior. Um, and I said, you know, this isn't really that great. Um, and they said, well, this is how research works, you know. Um, you, you do a whole lot of things and you only show the, the results that really are favorable to you. That's, um, and that you bury the other ones. Um, nonetheless, I, I don't like Yes, yes, it happens a lot, yeah. Um, then coming to coaxis, you know, fortunately we've had some wonderful people that have come to us with ideas, and, and we have a lot of things that don't go, that don't really go very far, um, but you've got to explore a number of items. Um, so coaxis was certainly one of them, and that was Professor Dale Howes, um, who's now... Uh, at yeah. the Department of Prostodontics in Sydney, in Australia. Um, and Dale came to me and said, mm -hmm. you know, I need this for screw retained. Um, and he'd done a cephalo, yeah. because of course there wasn't CBCT back in the early 2000s. Um, so he'd done a, a, a cephalometric study and he'd showed that if only yeah. he could get about eight degrees of angle correction, he would have been able to avoid how many cases of where they had to cement where they, they could have done the screw retained. So that was the motivation for it. Um, and then the question was, yes, we could do eight degrees, yeah. but if we did a few yeah. more degrees, and that's where we came up with 12, yes. it would actually go to 100% of the cases. Um, so, okay. so that's where the 12-degree coaxis came about. So, yes, it Certainly not us as a company that had done that. It was a yeah. very good-thinking clinician yeah. who had come and said, you know, this is what I need. And in a similar way, you know, it was uh, sitting at dinner yeah. in San Diego with Steve Chu that yeah. he came up and he said, you yeah. know, we love your Max implants yeah. in the posterior because we yeah. can get stability in an extraction socket. And they're just fantastic for us. But we need the same thing in an anterior extraction socket. Um, but mm -hmm. these are the factors that are pulling us in different directions. We want it narrow um, so that we have more bone. And he told me about um, the work of spray um, and how, mm -hmm. you, you know, dimension is so important, etc. So sitting there, 
over a glass of wine in San Diego, um, we said, okay, these are the constraints, these are the things, this is what you need, this is what yes. we want, and we came up with the inverter. <laughs> so so um, that's, that's where it happened. Yeah. So it's really just a case of listening yeah. and trying to see what is possible, and, and yeah. also there's a, yeah. there's a good deal of luck that goes with it. So the coaxes, interestingly enough, the concept of that comes from was originally thought of by two German professors, Schilly and Hartmann, um, and we only discovered this when we were trying to get a patent on the on the coaxis. Um, so we thought that Dale House was the inventor um, because he'd thought of it without knowing about Chile and Hartmann. It was only when we went to get the patent <laughs> that we discovered that it had already been patented. Yeah. Yes. So we then bought the patent from Chile and Hartmann. Um, but um, so, so what happens is that people have yeah. these problems and they think of, of ways of doing it. Yeah. But you've also got to have the technology to do it. Now, when Chile and Hartmann conceived the coaxis, um, machining technology was that to cut yes. an internal screw thread, you needed a tap. And there were things called tapmatics that we used in the machine shop to cut threads. And you always had to have a few millimeters yes. below where the thread went um, yeah. for the nose of the tap to go. Um, but right in 2000, and, it was about 2001, um, they, where Dale Haas had approached me to do this. I'd come back from a machine show in, in Germany and I'd seen a Swiss company showing how they made these little cutters that you could oh. now machine a thread to the bottom of a blind hole. And uh, so the company in Switzerland is Gluer and uh, they developed this tiny little cutter that had to, but now you also needed a CNC machine that had 8,000 RPM yeah. minimum speed because it's such a tiny cutter. Um, so you had to, so there were ingredients that you needed. And when I, when Dale Haas was talking to me about this, I thought, yeah. Yeah. You know, with this new technology, we can do this. Um, but had he come two years earlier, um, yeah. I would have probably said to him, oh, Dale, you know, we can't do this. Yeah. Um, but it was just the timing was all right. And that enabled us to be able to make coaxis implants yes. because you needed to be able to get a screw thread to the bottom of a blind yeah. hole. <laughs> so, so there's also luck that comes about or, or different things together. But you've also got to have a very good grasp of technology yeah. and requirements so for those um, to put it all together. don't know what a coaxis is, it's, it's, it's an incredibly, incredibly, uh, very, very clever design. Uh, so uh, a, a problem that we often have at sur uh, as surgeons is if we want to put the implant in the perfect position for a screw-retained restoration, quite often the, the apex of the implant's poking out buckley and you have to look at grafting procedures alternatively you can put the implant within to the bony uh, envelope and then you've got to do an angle correction using uh, using an abutment then do cement retained so it, there there are problems either way so what coaxis is is the implant has an internal angle correction within the actual head of the implant 
What this means is you can put the implant within the bony envelope and still get a screw retained restoration. And uh, it is a workhorse for us at uh, at, at Evo. And it, it, it means that, you know, we can put implants into perfect positions and have everything screw retained and not have to worry about angled multi-units which cause their own problems so for anybody listening to uh, who wasn't sure what we mean by the term coaxis that's what it is it's an implant with an internally uh, 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 with an internal angle correction within the head of the implant and it is it is very very clever stuff yeah, so um, a lot of a lot of luck goes with these things. Um, a lot of uh, knowing what technologies are around, um, and a lot of making sure you have all the right mm-hmm. relationships um, in order to do these things. Um, and then, of course, as the evolution of this goes towards immediacy, um, some of these things become very much more important um, because to do immediate full mm-hmm. arches without correct angles, um, you can do it. Yes, of yes. course you can. But it just makes it so much more difficult, more expensive, etc. So um, some of these things just come yeah. about and, and help um, just mm-hmm. that little bit in order to make the procedures go that stuff. much better. <laughs> then... Uh, that's what I was just thinking because I got so engrossed in what you were saying, what you were saying. I've lost track a little bit. Um, I, I think again, the um, you know you, you've obviously touched on the on the level of engineering that you go to. I understand that your your quality control and making sure that the implants are exactly as they expect it to be. That's that's that that's incredible as well because when I was at the uh, Zaga course last year with Carlos Aparicio, um uh, uh, Stuart there is and he was going through well you know these are the steps that 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 we include because it's not just that your engineering is to a uh, um, uh, high standard but your quality control is just as high is that is that correct Graham would you would you mind going over that a little bit yeah, probably we, we we do things a little bit differently and we always aim in to try and see how can you make this even better um, you know we want to work with top clinicians like yourself um, and therefore, you know, what is that little bit of extra yeah. that you can do? Um, similar to the Formula One, you know, they've all got rules that they've got to work by, um, but somebody's got to just do something a little bit better to mm-hmm. get that extra little bit of, of speed out of the car, etc. Um, so it's always just, you know, what can we do a little bit better? Um, so one of the things that worried me quite a lot was, people would say, oh, yeah, you know, this one fits really well, but this one doesn't. Um, and uh, you look at that and you sort of look at the way that things are made. So the traditional way is that you tolerance all your components. So in other words, you've got a minimum and a maximum. And when you set up your CNC machine, you set it um, at the minimum, knowing that the tool is going to wear... Um, and that as the next one comes out, it's going to be a little bit bigger and the next one a little bit bigger because the tool is wearing down um, as it does it. So manufacturers work between the minimum and maximum tolerances. Um, And therefore you you get this. And you put your tolerances quite close. They may be, you know, 50 microns or so. Um, And generally that's how it is done. And all the manufacturers that we know um, 
and I go to them because they often offer to make things for us, etc. Um, so you go and you look at their factories and you see how they do things. And there's a lot of contract manufacturer manufacturing going on. Um, yeah. You know, people come and they say, oh, we make the Nobel mm -hmm. screwdrivers for them or, you know, can we make yours for you, um, et cetera, et cetera. So you go and you have a look at that. But what I've discovered is that um, the better thing to do yeah. is to set your machine up in the absolute middle of the tolerance band mm -hmm. and then to yeah. measure every part as it comes off the machine um, immediately. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you make the adjustments and you try and keep it right in the middle um, the whole time. And then yeah. what you'll find is that, you know, everything should feel yeah. the same because they all just around about the middle. But that does yeah. require that you have a operator who's actually an inspector at every machine and he measures every part as it comes off the machine. Um, so, yep. yes, a little bit of the – so we don't run yep. machines through the night with nobody there because there you yep. have to set up at minimum and uh, accept that it's going to go towards that. Yep. And in the morning you measure and then you throw away the ones that don't quite make it. Um, yep. So we'd rather do it the other way around. We also then don't waste titanium um, because um, it's only when we set up a machine that we might get a few scrap yep. parts. But once it's going, we measure yes. in all the key components – um, so there is very little wastage, yes. um, and that is also a good a field of having factor. a tolerance where you're like we'll accept everything between here and here. You're actually tightrope walking, and you you're keeping on that very thin tightrope, which is. <laughs> so that's a I mean, fantastic that's... analogy, Pav. Well done. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so, that's exactly what that's what we try. That's what we try to do. And I think it, you know, um, from a long-term clinical outcome, will it make a difference? Probably not. Um, but it's yeah. just, uh, you know, it's just well, again, striving it, to it, do something it, a little bit it better. It reflects back to, as a clinician, knowing that, knowing that, well, actually, you know what, my, my, my implants are probably all just about the same, but they're going to be somewhere between here and here, versus actually, you know what, they're all along this line so that tolerance is, is 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 much 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 closer together um that's just that's just reassuring to know um as a clinician and again this is one of the reasons why um uh, why i use southern in fact one of the reasons why i switched to southern in the first place is because i wanted something with a machined neck based upon um my uh, dissertation from my master's which you know is based upon hydrocarbon removal and i because I, I, i'm of the opinion we do not need treated surfaces at all they are completely redundant if you get rid of the hydrocarbons you can get predictable integration uh, i think this is something that you and i have spoken briefly about as well so that's actually one of the reasons why i switched to uh, switched to southern um uh, one of the reasons why i used external hex as well is because i wanted a wide range of uh, uh, of uh, coaxis available to me um, and, uh, and when I first started it, I was like, oh, okay, external hex. But again, the more I've educated myself, the, the more I actually understand, well, actually, external hex is a good connection if you know how to use it correctly. There's a lot of people not using it correctly, and then they blame, uh, and then they blame the connection. Um, but there are other connections that Southern have, have DC connection and, 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 and different ones as well. And I've just, when my 
the reason why my journey first started with uh, uh, with Southern is purely because I wanted that machined neck. And then I've just gotten happier and happier as I'm going along, thinking to myself, you know, they, they, they understand corrosion. They're using the right materials. You know, the, the level of engineering is very high. And then, you know, then, then it's like, oh, well, you know, uh, now, you know, I've started using Max and, you know, I've got inverter uh, uh, available to me. Uh, it, it's just... It's just absolutely—it's it's just absolutely incredible to have uh, a system which can do just about anything with that level of, of of engineering. So it's been a fantastic journey for me as well. I've really enjoyed it, and I'm still learning. You know, we've got Greg Boisvali joining our team in the next month or so, and. I, I'm going to soak on his brain and get as much information from him as I can as well. He's a lovely guy. I've been chatting to him. He's a really nice guy. And I can't wait to learn from him. <laughs> yeah. I think just in terms of that, um, I fully agree that, um, you know, connections are totally overplayed in terms of their yeah. criticality to things. But external hex is more difficult to work with. Um, mm-hmm. It's um, the tactile feel of items is not that great, um, and you can't really make it taller because then you end up with other problems, etc. So I understand fully that it's not going to be the connection of choice for the majority of people placing implants. It's too difficult to work with. Um, but for those who are prepared to and, and get the tactile feel of an external hex, then it's a good good system. And yes, it gives you some other versatility with greater angles of coaxis, etc. Um, a fascinating um, discussion that I had with Katya Nelson from Freiburg University a few years ago. Um, Freiburg University had traditionally used external hex Bronemark implants for years and years. And then the wave of conical connections um, came across Germany Mm -hmm. and they felt that they were completely antiquated and they were doing the wrong thing. Um, So they then changed to conical connections. Um, And things went fairly well in the beginning until they started looking back at cases now with conicals that had gone 10 years, etc. And they started seeing that... Their external hex results, longer term, were actually better. Um, And they started questioning why is this. And there have been a number of publications out of this group from Freiburg. And I think um, probably Blum, um, his publication with Katja Nelson in in the authorship Mm -hmm. as well, um, is probably one of the the most significant there. And that is that um, the conical connections do fantastically well in light loading situations. So in other words, in the anterior aesthetics, um, if you're going to do an inverter in the anterior region, um, I've got no problem in saying conical connection. It gives you a better platform switch, which gives you better soft tissue stability. Um, The advantages to that conical connection in the anterior region. Um, But when you start going to posterior with conical connections um, and you look at them over time what happens is that they tend to open up slightly which gives you a micro gap Um, and they did testing and the Blum paper is all about this and they did testing on Ankylos Astra Nobel uh, there were four, four companies with the common conical connections 
Um, and they actually didn't use such high loads, but they put them on repeatedly, yeah. etc. Um, and they found that these conical connections actually open up with time. Um, and therefore, yeah. posteriorly, a butt joint is definitely the better thing to use um, yeah. if you want long-term yeah. stability of that connection because a butt joint doesn't go anywhere. It just stays there. Um, so butt joints at the back, and Strauman have got onto this with their BLX system, that the prosthetics that oh, they sell you at the back don't use yes. the conical connection. They sit on top of the implant um, to give you a butt joint. Yeah. So they call it a conical connection, but actually they're using it as a butt joint in the back of the mouth um, where your loads are highest. Mm -hmm. And we did the same before them. Um, we did the same with our internal hex. We have a, what we call the platform matched range, which yeah. sits on the top of the implant. So that in the back of the mouth, you use butt joints to give long-term stability. And in the front, you can use external hex or internal connections, etc. Um, but the internal, the conicals have the advantage of the bigger platform shift, yeah. which probably in the aesthetic zone might have just that tiny little bit of advantage. Um, so that's, that's, that's where it is. So, yes, um, you know, you've got to know the differences and where they're good and, and why they're good. Yeah. Um, and thereafter... A big factor is yeah. what works well in your hands. What the yeah, tactile I, I feel of this. I think this is something that Bill Schaefer um, and I and discussed as well. Is, but um, there's nothing wrong with external. Is, is, <laughs> it, it's, it's not the implant that works. The implant is just a tool. Uh, if you don't understand how to use that tool or you don't develop your skills and have the mentoring to be able to use those tools, you can use any tool. You're not going to get the same results. You know, so it's um, uh, so training is important. Continued education is important. Um, you know, I pride myself on training and education. I'm still not done. You know, I'm uh, going to be mentored on zygomatics by, by, by Greg, and I, I study hard on it. My learning will never stop. Um, and I know Graham, you've got the you've got the same attitude as well. And you know, when I speak to uh, Greg and other colleagues of that caliber, they you know they are always open to learning as well. So anybody listening, remember. I've always said that, you know, implants is a journey. It's not a learn, you do it, and, you know, and you're going to reach a peak. There's always something new to learn. So do remember that, you know, it's uh, as, as, as well as understanding the tools, you need to develop the muscle memory and have, uh, and have mentoring and the appropriate training to use these tools properly. Definitely, yes. and I, I, I absolutely, you know, you are allowed to change your mind on issues. Because as more scientific data yes. becomes available, um, you all of a sudden realize that, you know, I thought the following, yes. um, but now that I've seen this new data, I've got to change my mind on this, and I've got to go and think in a different direction. Um, and I think some people dig themselves yeah. into such a deep hole um, by saying, you know, this is how it is, um, and, yes. and they don't leave that opportunity to be able to change your mind I think, I when think new part of that's evidence human nature, becomes Graham, available. That, you know, particularly um, and if that's what one's also if you've always believed for something for so long and this data comes out that it says, well, actually, this is true, it is, is, 
<laughs> letting go of your ego almost to turn around and say, well, actually, what I've been saying for the past 10, 15, 20, however many years, uh, I was wrong. This is what the data is suggesting now. But no, that's that's the nature of scientific uh, development. You know, for a long time, the Earth was flat. For a long time, the Earth was at the center of the universe. And as the data comes, we have to we have to be open to it uh, and 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 interpret it and, and interpret it and, and and then move accordingly. Otherwise, we are doing ourselves a disservice, and we're doing our patients a disservice. So always read something with an open mind uh critically appraise the data and you know be, be open to changing your mind about things you know what i believe to be true may not necessarily believe what others believe to be true you know i know i know plenty of people that have what are you doing with external hex and they're getting incredible results with uh with with uh, morse tapers but ultimately if it works for the patient at the end of the day i'm happy and confident with what i'm doing because it's my interpretation of the data is that that's all that it comes down to Absolutely. And, uh, you know, yeah. I think the other thing is that one's got to look for, for, for fundamental data. And where I do that a yes. lot is in the poster sessions of the conferences, of the major conferences. Um, now, now, of course, you can go online and you can read all this through there and you can, you can sift the data. Because often that is, yes. um, the posters are often three years ahead of when the things are going to be published. Um, and then a lot doesn't get published because it doesn't sort of yes. fit with people's thinking or whatever. Um, but often there's some very fundamental yes. data there. Um, and that's where I met yes. um, Dennis Tarno and Anne Winneberg, yeah. um, was walking around the posters, um, reading every single one um, at places like the AO and the EAO, etc. cetera. Yes. Um, and we kept bumping into each other there. Um, because yes. they also go and look at all this, you know, what are the, what is yep. got really going on here? Um, and uh, you to yes. just be yes. a little bit ahead yes. of the game, you need to do that. It's it's a lot of work and effort, <laughs> but uh, but uh, yes. I find those just fascinating. And to to find that yep. and then find I mean, the person it, it, it who did the research. It, it, it's often the weird and wonderful that give you quantum leaps in what we're doing. Like uh, the, the data that I was looking at with regards to conditioning of implants, I know that for machine surfaces, once I've conditioned the implants when they go in, that on a machine surface, I'm going to get 80% bone-to-implant contact ratio. This is why I am so confident that actually, you know what, we mm. don't need treated surfaces because you know the, the, the getting 80% on a machine surface is huge. You know, and it's more than what we need for, for, for clinical success. And uh, uh, the data's been out there for a while. I just read it. That's what yeah. it is. But, I, you know, there are some people who are starting to become interested in this. And from my perspective, clinically, has it played a positive role? Yes, absolutely. In my, in my work, it has. Um, I'm, yes. I'm getting very stable um, bone, uh, uh, bone around, around machine surfaces, and I'm very happy with that. So, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting stuff for sure. <laughs> um, and along that line, um, we've done a number of clinical trials um, and a lot of animal work. Um, so we've worked with uh, um, Rio Jimbo and Anne Winneberg's group. Uh, we've placed implants into rabbits. We've done them into sheep, etc. Um, all trying to find a good way to preserve that energy on the surface. 
yeah. um, so that you don't have to yeah. take your implant and then do a separate operation like you're doing to activate the surface or to remove the hydrocarbons. Um, and yes. I must say yeah. that the results, uh, you know, you, you, these are expensive tests to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you go through all yeah. of this and you think, okay, we've cracked it. You know, we've now going to have this 80% BIC on this. Yeah. Um, and then you find that, yeah. no, it hasn't really, it's not st uh, significant, statistically significantly better yes. than what we've got. Um, and that's yeah. the difficulty is to maintain it in yeah. that state of, of hydrophilicity or, or surface activation um, in the packaging. Um, so we've... Again, speaking uh, with regards to that as well, is I still get yeah. failures. Um, I genuinely believe that any implant surgeon out there who says that they don't get failures, they're either lying or they're doing two implants a year. It's easy to have a 100% success rate when you're only placing two implants a year. Because even with all this, you get patients who come in and either um, they smoke, they haven't told you about it, yeah. they might be sick, there might be something else going on. So all that, whilst it's an unreasonable goal, my aim for my patients is to have 100% predictable integration and never have implants uh, problems with the implants in the long term. Uh, is it achievable? I don't know, probably not in my lifetime, but there's no reason why I shouldn't be striving for that. So that's, you know, that's just, that's the commitment that I make to patients. And um, you can go to all of these lengths and you still get certain patients where it's nice and easy and it's straightforward. You think it's going to be slam dunk case and the implant doesn't take. And then you get other patients where you're just like, oh, God, the patient's going to sneeze and the implant's going to come flying out of their mouth. They're going to be back next week. And the implants integrate. Dealing with the biological entity is a little bit more complicated than just the data. So everybody listening, please remember mm. that. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, the, the roughened surfaces are more forgiving. Um, and uh, I think that is, you know, the other factor that um, with a very um, meticulous surgeon, um, yes, you could go back to machine yeah. surfaces quite happily. Um, but for the lower common denominator, well, the average yeah. common denominator, um, probably you need the rough surface. And that's where the MSC is, is a good compromise yeah. in that you've got the rough yeah. down there um, to yeah. keep the implant. Graham, I really appreciate your time. Um, I'll, I'll let you get on with the rest of your Sunday because I'm, I'm about to head off to the gym myself now. Um, uh, for those listening, it's um, uh, if you want to know more, you could, you, is Southern have actually got a number of fantastic webinars on their, which are free to access on their website, um, going into all sorts of different things. So you know, is, is, is check out the webinars. You'll you'll learn a lot from them. Uh, feel free to, to to reach out to me as well. Always always uh, happy to discuss things. And you know what, Graham, I, I knew I was going to learn a lot from you today, and I, I have. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. So if, if there's anything else that you'd like to, yeah, so if there's anything else that you'd like to say before we wrap up, uh, you know, um, uh, please do let us know. Thanks, it's been lovely chatting. No, well, um, I think as always, yeah. we, we um, you know, we just interpret <laughs> what we see as the need from the clinicians. So yeah. keep, to, keep talking to us, tell us what you need. And let's see what we can do. And hopefully there's always some new technology out there to yes. be able to do something better. Um, the, 
we've never got to the end of the race. Thank you, Graham. It's always Enjoy trying to enjoy the rest of your Sunday. And that's what it's all about. So thanks right. so much for the opportunity, Take care. Bye, Dave.